1951 Florida, racial tensions were running high as four black men were accused of raping a white woman. When NAACP activist Harry Moore took up the cause on behalf of the men, he would put himself and his family right in the eye of the storm. Join us as we discuss the murders of Harry and Harriet Moore and dive into the darkness, one crime at a time. Welcome to One Crime at a Time. I'm your host, Shannon. With me, as always, my sister from the same mister, Christina. Hi. How are you? I'm alive. <laughs> Aren't we all? Thank God we all are. Sorry we missed you guys last week. Oh, gosh. But, um, our mom's been really it sick. It's just been... So. It's been kind of hectic, it's so... It's been bad. So... Not because she's sick. It's just been stressful. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, it is bad that she's sick. Well, no, I mean, it's bad. Well, I guess what I meant was is I'm not blaming her as well. Well, yeah, I yeah, okay. Yeah, of course not. She can't I help mean, it. she but, couldn't help it, so. But we're back with you guys this week. Hopefully we will. Hopefully we'll get back to both of our podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> and I can get my crap together. and Get your shit together, girl. Get it together. I've just been so tired. I am mentally and physically exhausted. I know. I know but anyway, we're well, gonna speaking get, of we're that, gonna get there. speaking of that, before we get started, I need to tell you about real sleep. Wow. Segway master. What is sleep? Tell me about what the <laughs> sleep is. This must be something new. <laughs> the pandemic has had a tremendous impact on sleep, insomnia, and anxiety. If you're suffering from sleep issues, like half the world is, our sponsor, Real Sleep, has developed the world's first personalized sleep solution customized to you. Now, unlike prescription and over-the-counter sleep aids, their plant-based formula works with your body to get you to sleep faster, help you sleep deeper, and cut down on sleep disturbances. Will it help you wake up the next morning when <laughs> yes. you do finally get on work and get refreshed? Now, I personally have never been able to sleep through the night, one night in my life ever. Even when I was a kid, I've always dealt with sleepless nights, but now with real sleep, I'm falling asleep faster, and I'm sleeping much more than I ever have before. I don't know what the sleep is. We'll have to discuss this more. <laughs> now, while sleep is solitary, you know you are not alone, and real sleep is here to help. That's why we're teaming up with real sleep to give you 20% off your next purchase. Go to the link on our show notes and use the code POD. P-O-D, to see why Real Sleep is the last sleep product you'll ever need. And we're also brought to you, of course, by our awesome subscribers on Patreon. We love you yes. guys. Uh, if you would like to help support the show, you can for as little as a dollar a month. We have several levels that include access to our exclusive Patreon feed, mini-sodes, merchandise, and commercial-free episodes. Have we even done a mini-sode in, like, forever? Yeah. Okay. We have. We haven't recorded one in a while, but we've been putting them out because oh, okay. we just recorded them <laughs> one time. <laughs> I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get there. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna need you to snap out of whatever you're in over. There. I am tired. All right. Well, it's time for our weekly review. Yay! Our week. Well, actually, you should read two this week because we missed last. Well, week. I only have one that I picked up. So sorry. Uh, we, I'm, I I'm just, sorry. I tried. <laughs> I tried, guys. It's still only going to be one, no matter how hard you try. 
This comes from Maxim Pictal. 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 It says, I get it. Well, <laughs> could you explain it to everyone else? Thank you. You know how we always say that. Well, thank you for getting it. When you hear true crime slash comedy when describing a podcast, some may shy away. But these chicks get it right. <laughs> it never feels like they're making fun of or demeaning the victims. It's clear that Shannon has a true passion for the stories, but humor is how they deal with things. My family is the same way, so I get it. See? Thank See? you, Maxim. See? We We're not crazy. You. As crazy as we thought. <laughs> <laughs> We're crazy. But not as crazy There's people as... out there just like us. Wow. We should get together and yes. have like a crazy we convention. <laughs> we should have like a crazy convention for all of our listeners. Yeah, we we should. should do that. A meet and greet, as they yes. say. Yes. We should. Let me know if you guys will be interested in a meet and greet after all this nonsense is over. But Actually, you can go back into it now, but only 10 people at a time can come so in. We would have so 10 that would only be coming. eight because if we're in there. <laughs> <laughs> so that would take like a week. Well, there but probably hey, wouldn't be 10 people that showed up anyway, so we would be true. good. So we could just go to dinner and hang out. Hey. Have some drinks. Yeah, you know, why hang not? Out. You oh, know. I went to the winery yesterday and done some wine tasting. Done some wine tasting? What kind of wine tasting did you taste? I done some peach, peach. and some blueberry. That, and that, some, that sounds way too sweet for me. No, it's really not. Sounds way too sweet. And uh, I've done some hot lana, which is the one made with the jalapeno peppers. Mm-hmm. And so many more. And they were so good. <laughs> Which, would, you, would you like to give a shout out to the winery? Yes, it's Warm Springs Winery. Warm uh, Springs Winery. Uh, maybe I don't have a migraine. Maybe it was something else. Maybe you shouldn't give a <laughs> shout out if you can't even pronounce it's the Warm name. Warm Springs Winery in Warm Springs, Georgia. Okay. Not far from the Little White House. All right. Well, I haven't gone there, so. Oh, you should go. Maybe one day. Maybe. Because you can taste up to like 12 wines and then you get a free wine glass and a free bottle of wine. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh. So that might be it's worth, worth it. It. <laughs> it might be worth it. I come it. home with seven bottles of wine, but that's beside the point. It's Whatever. Been a, it's been a rough month, yeah. okay? <laughs> okay, guys, so without further ado, yes. let's get into our story. Now, Harry Tyson Moore was born on November the 18th, 1905 in Houston, Florida, which was a tiny farming community in Swanee County in the Swanee. Florida in the Florida Panhandle. Swanee. Swanee. I like that word. I don't know why. Swanee. I Swanee. Swanee. Yeah, Swanee. Swanee. Let's just keep saying that for an Swanee. hour and a half. Swanee. <laughs> he was the only child of Johnny and Rosa Moore. Now, his father tended the water tanks for the Seaboard Airline Railroad and also ran a small store in the front of their house. Awesome. Now, Johnny Moore's health faltered when Harry was nine years old, Aww. and he died in 1914. Oh. So this left Rosa to try to manage alone, working in the cotton fields and running mm. their little store on the weekends. But in 1915, she sent Harry to live with one of her sisters in Daytona Beach, Florida. The following year, he moved to Jacksonville, where he spent the next three years living with three other aunts, Jessie, Adriana, and Massey Tyson. Okay. Now, Jacksonville has been described as kind of the Harlem of Florida at the time. Now, Jacksonville had a large and vibrant African-American community with a proud tradition of independence and intellectual achievement. And the town was full of successful, educated, enlightened people, and it had a profound effect on Harry to see people 
you know, with his same skin color that were educated, had built up this community, were, you know, accepted in the community. And so this would pr- this would prove to be the most important period in his formative years. Now, Moore's aunts were all educated, well-informed women. Two were educators and one was a nurse. And they took this boy into their house on Louisiana Street and treated him like, you know, he was their son that they'd never had. And under their nurturing guidance, Moore's natural inquisitiveness and love of learning were reinforced. Now, after three years in Jacksonville, he returned home to Swanee County in 1919 and finished high school there. Okay. He then enrolled at Florida Memorial College. Okay. And over the next four years, Moore excelled in his studies, earning straight A's except for one B. Oh he my, got oh one no. B in four years. No. He was <laughs> he was nicknamed Doc by his classmates. And there were even stories of him helping his math teacher with math problems that the teacher wasn't able to solve. <laughs> I'm not so, going to say so anything. So Harry was teaching the teacher. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. Now, as we all know, these years were ones of pervasive racial violence that more often than not went unchecked by officials. And just before the 1920 election, the Ku Klux Klan marched in downtown Orlando specifically to intimidate black voters to keep them away from the polls. Well, why else would they be walking? To promote their company? (laughs) Yeah. Stupid ass. <laughs> For real. <laughs> now, this was a time when when that could happen because the Klan had basically complete impunity because most law enforcement were members of the Ku Klux Klan. At the Not time. only law enforcement, congressmen. Yeah, I mean, for real, everybody. I mean, I mean just all over the country, yeah. congressmen, yeah. mayors, governors. Yeah, the I establishment, mean, basically. Basically, everybody. So that's how they were able to get away with all this crap. Stupid. So, it's not like there was anyone that was going to stop them from intimidation, from all the stuff they were doing. Now, when a man named July Perry came to Orlando. July. Yes. That's a name in Lonesome Dove. Yes, it is. <laughs> now, he came to Orlando from nearby Oconee, Florida, to vote. He was beaten, shot, and hung from a light post. And then the primarily African-American town was burned in a mob rampage that killed dozens just because a little man tried to go vote. Okay, people, look. I mean, real. I, I don't know, it's ridiculous. For decades after, Oconee had no black residents and was known as a sundown town. Which, if you don't know what that means, means that you didn't want to be on the street. You no, were you didn't. You didn't not. want to be out after sundown. You don't want to be on, out after sundown, no matter right. who you were. Now, today, the city of forty-six thousand is twenty-one percent African American. So, I guess it's changed some down there. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> I can't say totally, but no comment. but apparently it has. Come. I'm pleading the fifth for real. <laughs> Now, in May 1925, at age 19, Harry graduated from college with what they is referred to as a normal degree. And the reason it's called a normal degree is because it was the degree that white people were allowed to get. And most really? black people were not allowed to get really? a normal degree. Just look, was it's, he a doctor? Was he a lawyer? What was he when he, he got a, his degree? He, his was degree. A, he was a um, school teacher. Okay, then it's a teacher's right. degree. Yes, exactly. I mean, get over yourselves, people. 
And he accepted a teaching job in Cocoa, Florida. In Brev- oh, I like that one. Brevard, <laughs> Brevard County. Now, after graduating, he began teaching fourth grade at Co- Cocoa's only... <laughs> I don't know why I have trouble saying Cocoa. <laughs> Cocoa. He began teaching fourth grade at Cocoa's only black elementary school. During his first year in Brevard County, he met an attractive older woman. Oh, he likes them older yeah. women. Yeah. Well, I mean, she was Older 20- women make beautiful lovers. <laughs> That's what they say. No, she was 23 and he was 20, so it wasn't like she was much older. Oh, okay. But. Well, that, that, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I just don't play into all of that. Yeah, but I mean, anyway, she was named Harriet Sims, and she had taught school herself but at the time that they met, she was selling insurance for the Atlanta Life Insurance Company. How do you go from teaching to selling insurance? I guess it's I just really a... need to know because can you make more money? <laughs> I bet she probably was making more money selling insurance than hey, school teaching. Hey, I need somebody help me out here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I can almost promise you she was. Now, Harry Moore and Harriet Sims married on December the 25th, 1926. Christmas. Yep. And moved into the Sims family home the following fall. Yay. Her family lived in Bims, Florida, which is a small citrus town outside Titusville. Oh, y'all got some oranges. Mm-hmm. That's mm. what orange groves are. Now, the newlyweds moved in with Harriet's parents while they built their own house on an, enjoy, on an adjoining acre of land. Would you like for me to read this for I you I guess tonight? I'm having trouble pronouncing it. Ha- Words are hard. <laughs> Words are hard. Words are hard. Words hate me. <laughs> in 1927, Harry was promoted to the position of principal at the local Titusville you Colored go, School. Harry. Now, of course, the city's school system was racially segregated. Like many in the country at the time. Oh my god. And while Harry taught they were all going to hell. Yeah. While Harry taught the school's ninth grade, he also supervised the team of six other teachers at the school. He taught ninth grade. God yes. bless you. For real. <laughs> god bless you. <laughs> I'm sure he handled them. Now the school was closed early his first year by the local school board just six months into the year as part of the local school system systematic discrimination against black children. They didn't think that black children deserved more education than white children. But yet the first black school opened in 1834 in Savannah, Georgia because it was okay back then for them to have an education. No, it really wasn't. I mean, that's... But not... It was not okay. Early 1900s? It was not okay then. And, I mean, it, it should have been okay, but it wasn't okay. I mean, so they closed this school six months into the school year because at that time, a lot of kids, white kids, didn't even go to school six months out of the year. So they're like, well, we can't have black children going well, to school more than white children. <laughs> now, it was obvious they were trying to keep black kids from getting an education by closing the school. And in March 1928, their eldest daughter, Anna Rosalie, who was nicknamed Peaches, she that, was born. <laughs> was she born in Georgia? No, Florida. You actually know that most peaches come from South Carolina. Yes, this is true. Georgia, you lie. <laughs> you lie, Georgia. You lie. You lie to people. You lie to everybody. You do. You're Call not yourself the peach, peach state. state. When in fact, you are not the peach state. What are you, really? <laughs> We're just here. Now, <laughs> <We're> just Georgia. <laughs> I, we have a lot of songs written about us. So <laughs> that's how we became famous. <laughs> we should be the song. The state. song state. The song state. Mm-hmm. Okay, anyway. 
That same year, they moved into their own house on the acre of land that was given to them by Harriet's parents. And when Peaches was six months old, Harriet returned to teaching at the Mims Color School. Now, on September 30th, 1930, their second daughter, Juanita Evangeline, was born. Okay. And his civic activism flowed into his love of education. Harry would bring his own materials and educate to his students about black history, because, of course, it wasn't in any of the school books issued by the government. And what, what he also did was he would bring in ballots and teach his students how to vote. He taught his students the importance of picking candidates and making a decision on who to vote for and to look for people who took your interests seriously. And in 1933, a cousin of Harriet's received some literature in the mail from the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which, is, of course, is also known as the NAACP. Now, this man, upon getting this literature, was scared to death that just being in possession of these materials and associated with the NAACP was enough to get him killed. So he decided that he wanted to get rid of it. Well. But instead of throwing it away, he gave it to Harry who, it is said, looked up at the man after reading the material and said, quote, this is just what I've been waiting for, unquote. In uh -oh. 1934, Moore joined the NAACP. One of Moore's goals was to bring everyone to an equal level, especially when it came to education. He didn't want to, he wasn't trying to make some people better than other people. He just wanted everybody to be equal. Well, Yeah. Now, he wanted equal education for all people. And in 1937, in conjunction with the All-Black Florida State Teachers Association and backed by NAACP attorney Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood! Who, who would go on to become a Supreme Court Justice. Yes! Moore filed the first lawsuit in the Deep South that its goal was to equalize black and white teachers' salaries. At the time, black teachers made about half what their white counterparts made. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure that Harriet made more money selling insurance. Yeah. Now, his good friend John Gilbert, the principal of Coco Junior High School, he volunteered to be the plaintiff in the case. And the lawsuit was defeated in both the circuit court and the Florida Supreme Court. Now, even though the suit was un unsuccessful, it was still important because what it did was spawned dozens of other federal lawsuits in Florida that eventually led to equalized salaries. So this just kind of jump-started right. the movement. Right. So it was important for that reason, even though it, was, it didn't succeed. Now, by 1941, NAACP work had become Moore's driving obsession. And in 1941, he organized the Florida State Conference of the NAACP. So okay. It's the first branch of the NAACP officially in Florida. And he soon became its unpaid executive secretary. He began churning out letters, circulars, um, pro pro that protested unequal salaries, segregated schools, and the disenfranchisement of black voters. In 1943, he moved into an even more dangerous area, lynchings. Now, by 1930, White mobs in the Klan had lynched 4,000 black people nationwide, with most of them being in the Deep South, and many with law enforcement complicity, because like we said earlier, a lot of law enforcement were members mm -hmm. of the Klan. 
Yes, I detest the Klan. I detest We called racism. the law on the Klan one time. You yes, we did that? call the law on the We actually saw the Klan having a meeting out in and the field. And a big field, ring of fire. And a big ring of fire. They were burning the cross. Of course, we called the police, but of course, I'm they sure, I'm, I I'm don't sure know if that they there were police there officers that were out there doing it. So it probably didn't do any good. Now, Florida had more lynchings per capita than any other southern state. And Harry, he went in full force against this. He was actually doing his own investigations into these lynchings because, of course, nobody in law enforcement was investigating them. He was going to the sites where the lynchings occurred. He was interviewing surviving family members, taking sworn affidavits, writing letters to the governor, accusing white sheriffs of being implicated in these murders or covering up the murders. And he just kept pushing and pushing and pushing it. Yeah. Now, Willie James Howard, he was a 15-year-old African-American living in Live Oak, Florida, in Suwannee County. Suwannee. 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 He had a job at the Van Priest Dime Store, and for Christmas that year, he gave cards to all of his co-workers. Christmas cards. Oh, that's sweet. Right? right? That's so sweet. Now, one of those co-workers was Cynthia Goth. She was working her Christmas break at the Five and Dime to make a little spending money. Now, Cynthia was a student at Swanee High School. She was pretty popular, the daughter of a former state legislator. Mm. She was white. Now, when she received the card from Willie James Howard, she got upset. Why? It's just a Christmas card. <sighs> Jesus. And when Howard learned that the card upset her, he actually wrote her a letter of an apology which he gave her on New Year's Day, 1944. And the letter read, I'm going to read this letter. Dear friend, just a few lines to let you hear from me. I am well and hope you are the same. This is what I said on that Christmas card. I hope you will understand what I mean. That is what I said. Now, please don't get angry with me because you could never tell what may get somebody, what may get in somebody. I did not put it in there myself. God did. I can't help what he does, can I? I know you don't think much of our kind of people, but we don't hate you all. We want to be your we want to be your friends, but you won't let us. Please don't let anybody see this. I hope I haven't made you mad. If I did, tell me about it and I will forget about it. I wish this was a northern state. I guess you call me fresh. Write and tell me what you think of me, good or bad. Sincerely yours, you know, he signed it, YKW for Cynthia Goff. I love your name. I love your voice. For a sweetheart, you are my choice. Okay. So he, I mean, I think he, it sounds like he had a little crush on her. Yeah. And, you know, she got that card. She was upset. He's trying to apologize. He's like, look, I can't help how I feel about you. You know, I didn't put these feelings in me. God did, you know. But, you know, he, and he says, please don't see, let anybody see this. You know, I'm apologizing. I'm sorry that you, you know, I didn't mean to upset you. Now, Cynthia was offended by the card and by the letter. Mm. Get over yourself, Cynthia. And she gave them to her father, Phil Goff. Who, Phil Goff. Phil Goff. Phil Goff. Who was the Live Oak postmaster and, as mentioned before, former state legislator. Now, Goff, along with his friends S.B. McCullers and Reg H. Scott, they allegedly went to Willie's house. Oh, my God. Really? 
Willie's mother, Lula, said the men pulled a gun and forced him into their truck. They then drove to the Bond Howell Lumber Company, where Willie's father, James, worked and picked him up and took them with him. From there, they drove to the Swanee River, east of Swanee Springs, Florida. The three men bound Willie James' hands and feet while his father watched helplessly. Then, according to Willie's father, they held a gun against his head and forced him to jump into the river, telling him he could either jump or be shot. I think I'd rather be shot. So, well, I guess he would rather jump, because that's what he did. Now, Goff, McCullers, and Scott signed an affidavit which stated that they had only wanted James Howard to whip his son, and rather than be whipped by his father, Willie had committed suicide by jumping into the river. Oh, bullshit. (laughs) Now, you cannot tell me he'd kill himself over taking a whipping. I mean, come on, people. Such bullshit. It's such bullshit. Now, Goff and his friends said, Willie... I, I, I just have to say this. I hope all of the people who are involved in harming these people, I hope... They're burning they, in hell. I hope you they know burn they are. in hell. They're burning in hell. Now, Goff and his friends said Willie James defied them and said he wasn't going to take a licking from white people and slip from the bank trying to get away. Oh. No, he did Get over yourself. <laughs> now, the next day, a black undertaker retrieved the body from Swanee River. Now, at the end of January 1944, Mm -hmm. Thurgood Marshall wrote Florida Governor Holland demanding the three men be punished. Governor Holland wrote Marshall back and suggested the evidence be presented to a Live Oak grand jury, but he warned that it would be the word of one black man against the word of three white men. Oh, my God. So he's basically telling them why bother, basically. You know, that's what he's saying. Why even bother? Because a kid was just killed. Well, That's why you right. bother. Well, Marshall took it to the grand jury anyway. And surprise, surprise, the grand jury failed to return an indictment, and the case was largely forgotten. <sighs> except by Harry Moore. Now, Moore conducted his own investigation, and using the Howard lynching as his rallying cry, he also appealed to the NAACP leadership for help in getting a federal investigation started. Because he's trying to get the people at the national level to put pressure on the federal they government. They were just as bad. A lot of them. Yeah, the federal government. Yeah, they the were federal just authorities. As bad. Yeah. Now, the federal government claimed it lacked jurisdiction. <laughs> You're federal. But, you don't like jurisdiction anywhere. Well, unless, I mean, technically, yes, but there's ways to, that they can to get around that. And but that was the excuse that they use, they would use this excuse over if and over a, and it, over again. But what I find funny about this jurisdiction debate is they're they don't mind they have jurisdiction when it suits them, you know. And they supposedly have, they don't have jurisdiction unless it unless a crime is committed across state lines. That's supposedly the big thing that gets federal government jurisdiction yes it is i mean legally yes but my point is they will come in and take over a case at times when it suits them they did with the medgar evers case they came in and take over a lot even to this day yeah that's what i'm saying i mean they may say that that's when they're supposed to take over but that is bull crap (laughs) well i'm just saying that they can come in and take over any time that they see the fit to do it well if Technically, they they can't, but my point is they do. Now, whether they're called in or whatever, but when they're, this, my thing is, 
Okay, but wouldn't they have been called in then if someone... No, because the local law enforcement wasn't going to call them in because local law enforcement was complicit in the whole thing. They weren't going to call the federal FBI in over three white guys killing a a black boy. I would think, though, that if a citizen contacted the federal authorities, that they would at least come and look into it. No. The FBI's not going to do that just because a citizen calls. No. They're going to claim that they lack jurisdiction and can't do anything about it because they don't want to do anything about it. They don't want to be involved. You all suck. (laughs) So, like I said, they claim they lack jurisdiction. And like so many other lynchings, this one went unpunished. As usual. No charges. The federal government was just as bad. No charges, let alone convictions, followed. I mean, there were not even any charges. Now, James and Lula Howard, fearful for their lives, they left town after the funeral. They moved to Orlando and never returned. After moving to Orlando, James Howard recanted his version of events, but I tend to think that he was probably told, hey, you recant this or else. I'm sure he was pressured to recant by some people, some certain people. Yeah. Don't you think? Probably. I mean, I don't know why he would have lied to begin with. And the story about them just wanting his dad to whip him, to spank him, and okay. him killing okay. himself doesn't make sense. Okay, if any of them actually believe that shit. <laughs> doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Y'all are more stupid than the people who actually done it. Now, the perpetual inaction in cases like Howard's, in which no one's arrested, no one's tried... No one's convicted. It spurred more to take action. And in 1947, he wrote a letter to Florida's congressional delegation in which he said, quote, We cannot afford to wait until the, until the southern states get trained or educated to the point where they can take effective action in such cases. Human life is too valuable for more experimenting of this kind. The federal government must be empowered to take the necessary action for the protection of its citizens, unquote. So he's just calling out the federal government saying, you're as con- if you don't do anything about this, then you're just as com- com- Im- Im- <laughs> if you He's calling out the federal government mm-hmm. saying, if you don't do anything about this, you're just as guilty as everybody down here. Because you need to step in and do something. Now, from that point until his death, Moore investigated every single lynching that occurred in Florida. At first, his protests were confined to letters to the government, but to the governor. But he quickly threw himself directly into those lynching cases. Like I said earlier, taking sworn victims, sworn affidavits from the victims' family, and investigating them on his own. But he did. He investigated every single one that took place in the state of Florida. Okay. Now, in 1944, Thurgood Marshall won a major victory in a landmark case, Smith v. Allwright, in which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the Lily White Democratic Party primary was unconstitutional. And if you don't know what that was, it was called Lily White because at that time, only white people were allowed to vote in the primaries. Uh And black people could vote, but only in the general election. Yeah. Which is crap because it's not like these white folks were going to pick a candidate that would look out for the interest of black people. Yeah, no, I mean there weren't any. Right, so that's why, I mean, they weren't going to have somebody up there in the primaries that would actually win 
Yeah. That had any interest for the black people because the black people weren't allowed to vote anyway. So what right. do they care? You know, they're not going to care what the mm-hmm. black people had to say because they can't vote for them anyway. Right. So how do you fix that? Well, you get more black vote voters voting until the black votes are so many in number that the candidates will have to take that into consideration. When they get to voting and it's... And then these white candidates are like, well, you know, I might not win if I don't get the black vote. That's what they're trying to do. Yeah. So, Moore immediately organized the Progressive Voters League. And in the next six years, due primarily to his leadership, over 116,000 black voters were registered by the Florida Democratic Party. This represented 31% of all eligible black voters in the state And that figure was 51% higher than any other southern state. So he's really, you know, doing something down there. He's, He's out there getting this done. But this was Central Florida where, like a lot of places, there was a lot of Klan activity. Mm-hmm. A lot. There was a lot in Florida. Yeah. A lot. There were Klansmen who had, like we said, positions in government, so they controlled the institutions that were built to protect citizens, as long as they were white. Yep. Now, people were openly being intimidated and kept away from the polls, threatened with death, beatings, whatever it took. Now, Harry Moore's constant barrage of letters finally got Governor Millard Caldwell's attention, and he had his executive secretary write a county commissioner in Harry Moore's Moore's district um, for, quote, the lowdown on Harry. He wanted the lowdown on Harry, and this letter was sent in March of 1946. The next month, he received a reply from the commissioner. He told him, quote, He's a Negro school teacher at the present time, and I am informed that he will not be employed after his school term ends. He's a troublemaker and a Negro organizer. So, as conveniently predicted by the county commissioner, in June of 1946, as a reward for his political activism and trying to make things better, he and Harriet were both fired from their teaching jobs. Okay. Now, realizing that he would be blacklisted from teaching... Moore took a bold step, and he became the first full-time paid executive secretary of a state conference for the NAACP. First one ever. Now, his daughter, Evangeline, remembers that the family hardly ever spent a Sunday at home because they would visit nearby towns trying to develop new NAACP chapters. She also said, quote, I can remember being very frightened when we went to the meetings and came back at night because oftentimes there would be cars that would follow us either out of the city limits or sometimes out of the county limits. So what Harry Moore was doing was dangerous. Well, yeah. There's no doubt about that. He was pissing people off because he's getting all these black people to rise up and stand up and say, you know, we're going to be heard. We're going to vote whether you like it or not. Right. So some have said that what some have said that they called what he was doing it was essentially committing suicide mm-hmm. by putting himself out there because to be a black activist in the 1940s in the South there was more than a probable chance that you would end up dying for that cause. But, but it wasn't just in the South. No, no, I'm just saying, but it was more than probable that you would in the uh, if you were down here and you were 
doing that, you were going to, you were writing your own death certificate, basically. But Harry Moore seemed to be perfectly fine with that. He cared more about the cause than the risk. And during his first two years, he built the Florida NAACP. <laughs> oh, wait, I said it right. You said it right. She's had this thing about the NCAA. And I know. I'm not got She wants the NCAA to step in and take care of this. That's what it is. So um, he built the Florida NAACP to a peak of over 10,000 members in 63 branches. And in January 1949, however, the NAACP National Office decided to double the annual dues from $1 to $2. And this caused membership to plummet all over the country. Because what you're essentially doing is you're trying to, you're, disen, you're disenfranchising the, the poor black people. Mm-hmm. Because you're doubling what they're and two dollars was a lot yeah. of money back then, and they only made half the salary of right. what normal. I mean, every so that led, like I said, to membership plummeting all over the country. Florida followed suit, dropping to three thousand members in the next year. So they went from ten thousand to three thousand because yeah. Florida was a poor state. You had a lot of poor people in Florida. <clears throat> Now, Moore and the National Office, they began having increasing, their disagreements began to increase over his political activities, over his full-time status. But what the main issue was, is the head of the NAACP at the time was a man named um, Walter White. That was his name. Mm -hmm. And he... His philosophy on dealing with the voting situation was, yes, he wanted to get black people registered to vote. But he wanted it to be where they weren't pressuring them to register as a Democrat or a Republican. They wanted Just them as long to as they reg registered, okay? They wanted them to be able to Even choose. though at the time... Um, I mean, it was fine. That would, that would, that would work up north. Yes. But... What he didn't understand was in the South at the time, it was mainly Democrat, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. So what Harry Moore wanted was for the black voters to register as Democrat because what he wanted to do, because there were so many registered Democrats, his he thought that the best way to get representation for black people was to have them voting for the Democratic Party to turn that party away from what we would call the Southern Democrat, where, you know, the Democrats at that time in the South were pretty much the Klan members, you know, people that were racist, basically. It was full of racists at the time. So Harry, and I don't think that at, well, a, it, at a national it, level that people understood well, the dynamic in the South. They should have because it was primarily the Democratic Party back then everywhere. That right, was but it was racist. a lot in the South. It was a lot in the South. I'm not. I'm not saying that, but it was primarily the Democratic Party everywhere that was like in the Klan and all that. Well, if you were in the Klan at the time, you were a Democrat. Yes, so, that's, that's what, what, that's what I was trying to say. Yes, but and Harry Moore who lived with this every day, saw it every day, knew who was in this party, knew where this these ideas were coming from. Mm -hmm. He wants to inf basically have black people infiltrate 
that party and change it and change it, change which I think views. was probably the best strategy for the South. It was it was the best strategy anywhere. Yes, but I don't think at a national level they understood that. No, because and they still it don't. wasn't as prevalent up there as it was down no, here. No, it wasn't. But and so there was a lot of tension between the national level NAACP and Harry Moore. Yeah, and he was eventually kicked out of the NAACP because the way they did it was they came in and they blamed him for this huge drop in membership in Florida because, you know, it went from 10,000 to 3,000. But what the actual cause was, was them doubling their registration fees. But they saw this as a way to get him out because they didn't agree with him pressuring the black voters to but to register Democrat. And they didn't want to offend anybody that might write them a check, basically. Of course. And so at the national level, they they froze him out, basically. Got rid of him, took him out of the NAACP, and blamed it on the drop in membership, which was actually caused by the at the national level by doubling the right. dues. Mm-hmm. But, so that's how that went down. Now, Harry had also made an enemy of Sheriff Willis V. McCall. Now, Willis Virgil McCall was sheriff of Lake County, Florida. He was elected for seven consecutive terms from 1944 to 1972. Yep. He patrolled his territory with his pearl-handed revolvers and was the poster boy for racist Southern sheriffs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he wasn't about to let Harry T. Moore change the way business was done in Lake County, Florida. So, just so you will have a clear idea of who Willis McCall was, here's a oh, quote. Lord. This is a quote from him, okay? Oh, Lord, please, because I cannot stand that man. Never met him. Never met him. But I can't but stand he's him. He's a piece of shit. Quote, I don't think there's any question about it. The white race is a superior race to the black race. Oh, my. In their native country, they're still eating each other. We they don't never ate each other. Real. We don't do that. So there's but don't, the, don't don't we unquote. in certain ways? <laughs> yes. In certain ways, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. We 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 maybe not we, like ingesting, but Right. So there's the piece of shit we're dealing with here, okay? That son of a bitch. Now, Willis V. McCall believed the black condition was something that was going to be dictated and should be dictated by white people. And that white Black condition? Yes. Because what he... This... Let me go on. And that whites would take care of blacks over time if blacks just stayed in their place. This was what he thought. That if you just sit there, keep your mouth shut, do what you're supposed to do, we will take care of you. Is that condition? Not... <laughs> the black condition. What are you going to cure their blackness? Or <laughs> is you... I'm not understanding what the black condition. What he's saying is, what he's calling, what he's saying the condition is, is them rising up, oh, getting okay. out of their place. That we need that the whites needed to step up, put the black people back in their place. Okay, but have them sit there, tell them to hush your mouth. We will take care of you. But didn't we try that back in like yes, the eighteen hundreds? Yes, we did. We did. We did. We already tried that. It yes, didn't work. It didn't work exactly. So I mean, it's. it's I mean, stupid. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm not trying to. 
I know you're bringing up anything. You're, but you're exactly right. The white people did try that. It didn't work because we don't. That's not our place. It's God's place. That's not why we were put here. That's no. not our place. We're not. So of superior. course it didn't work. We're not superior to anyone. So of course it didn't work. But he wants to supposedly go back to trying that. A reporter for the Orlando Sentinel who knew Willis McCall stated that people were afraid of him. You think? <laughs> hey, <laughs> I'm afraid of him. <laughs> and it's 20, it's crazy. 2021. He is said to have ruled his county with an iron fist. Within one year of taking office, six African-American grove workers charged him with brutality. Yeah, I can see that. Civil rights groups, the FBI, and Florida officials would go on to investigate McCall 48 more times during his time as sheriff. You know who I think of, and I'm not saying that the one in this movie, that the sheriff in this movie is racist, but you, you probably know who I'm talking Buford about. Buford T. Justice. Yes. Yeah, he's racist. This is Buford T. Justice. <laughs> So if y'all want to get a mental picture kind of a what? That is, exact, that is exactly. Yes, go watch Smokey and the Bandit, Buford T. Justice, and that is the, who we're talking about. Yes, exactly. I think that character was based on this sheriff. On McCall? It very well may could be. Yes, exactly. So, there you go. <laughs> exactly. Glad to help y'all out with that. It's exactly who I pictured. And I didn't even have to finish my statement. That was amazing. Now, one year after McCall became sheriff of Lake County, black veterans began returning home to their small towns. Say they'll fight for us, but we can't but we're, reward but, them. Right. We have to keep pushing them just, down. When you get back home, you sit down and you be quiet. Oh, fuck off. So, black males who had been in Europe and who had been allowed to be in an integrated society for two or three years, you know, doing things with white people, you know, going to any place they wanted to in cities like London and Paris... They're now suddenly coming back to Groveland and literally being told to get back in the fields. Literally. And when I say literally, I mean literally. In fact, McCall would actually go get black workers if they did not show up for work in the groves where they were employed. Are you fucking kidding me? No. This is not... (laughs) It's not slavery. Slavery was ended in 1865. Yes, this guy's still living in that time. He saw his role... As protecting the economy, and by extension... Protecting the economy? Yes. He's, Wouldn't the economy be boosted if these people were allowed to go out and work like normal and spend, spend their money, money like they're normal? Well, he's saying he's protecting the individual grove owners because if these people aren't showing up for work, then it's then his they duty. they would have to work, and oh my God, the horror. And it's his duty to go make sure that they're out there working for these grove owners. If and not, in turn, that's him protecting the Florida's economy. No, that's you telling somebody that that's their place. Right, exactly. These grove owners, if they don't show up for work, they don't get paid. Right. So how is right. that hurting them? Right, you know. But you had a number of these black veterans who wanted more out of life. And and so in a place like Groveland, you had people like Sammy Shepard coming back from the war and not wanting the life that his ancestors had had. I don't blame him. Now, Sammy Shepard, he was an, also an unusual case for the time because his father owned a home owned some property, so he was more independent than most blacks, and Sammy Shepard had grown up with that independence. See, that's what confuses me, is because even when slavery was going on, not all of your African Americans were slaves. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand where it turned that all black people had to be suppressed and couldn't own things and couldn't... When we were told that we couldn't own them, 
You know how we are when we get told we can't do something. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm just. <laughs> well, okay. First of all, no human yeah. has the right, right to own another human being. That's the whole reason right. God sent Moses into Egypt to free the Israelites. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. People. Hello. They were, and by the way, they were brown too. Okay, they were brown people. Yes. <laughs> Jesus wasn't white people. No, he was not. So. No, I'm just he getting was up from on, the Middle East. My so, oh, my so well, he was from the Middle East because that's he where Jerusalem was. Jerusalem he, he was not white. He was not from America. <laughs> he was not from England. He never left the Middle East and Jerusalem and Bethlehem. That's where he was. Well, I just want to. Glad we got that cleared yeah, up. All you people out there, you know, thinking that. Calm down. Calm down. Well, we probably just lost so many listeners, but I don't care. And it may have been this independence that put Sammy Shepard in the line of fire of Willis McCall. And the events that followed would change the life of everyone involved, including Harry Moore. Dum, da, da, dum. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> you know what? what? Well, pause for a minute. Okay. We may have lost listeners, but I don't care because like... something like that. Needs to be Heck said. Heck yeah, it needs to be said. Okay. I don't think we lost listeners. We have our they listeners. May, they, are... may, they may cut this episode off. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I don't really care. Anyway, here we go. It's been more than half of a century, and yet to this day, no one really knows what happened for sure. Well, that's what... probably because it wasn't investigated. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> written down. Nobody cared. No right. evidence was saved. Nothing. Now, what we do know is that on July 16th of 1949, Norma Paget, a 17-year-old married white woman in Groveland, Florida, and her husband had been having marriage difficulties. Well... They had married very young. They had gotten together that night to go to a dance, I guess, to try to make up. Now, her story is that they were coming back from the dance and had car trouble. She said that four black men stopped to help them. Mm-hmm. They then turned violent, overpowered her husband, and attacked and raped her. Why would they turn violent if they stopped to help I you? don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> now, Lake County, <laughs> Lake County deputies arrested Sammy Shepard, who was 22, Walter Irvin, 22, and Charles Greenlee, 16. The three were arrested less than 15 hours after the alleged rape took place. And let me get, were these even the ones that she said did so it? So a lot of, you know, Or did they just go arrest some random black I don't kids know. And, no, and to this day, nobody really knows how these, it's four people that actually came up on the radar. A fourth suspect, Ernest Thomas, fled the county and avoided arrest. But a sheriff's posse, a sheriff's posse, <laughs> caught up with him 10 days later. They shot and killed him about 200 miles northwest of Lake County in Madison County. A coroner's inquest was unable to determine who exactly killed Thomas as he was shot about 400 times. Okay, really? One would have sufficed. Right. 400 times. 400 where, okay, where did, where, uh, that's the taxpayers' ammunition that yeah. you're shooting into this poor Well, this guy. was a posse, so it was individuals gathered by the sheriff. Stupid asses. Now. One would have been fine. What, yeah. could y'all not aim real good? So Two, maybe. So y'all said, well, let's just shoot him as many times as possible so we know he's dead? Really? Were there any places on his body that didn't have a hole in it? I don't know, 400. That's I mean, a that's lot what, of fucking gunshots. I mean, that's what I'm saying. 
I mean, that's a lot of fucking gunshots. Now, as word spread about the alleged rape, an angry crowd of whites from all over Central Florida, they come from as far away as Orlando, and they gathered at the county jail in Tavares and demanded that McCall turn the suspects over to them for lynching. No. Because even though, even if they had have done this, which I don't believe they did, mm-hmm. even if they had of, they still get a fair trial. Yes. Now, to his credit, I will say, McCall had hidden Shepard and Irvin in the basement of his um, home. He didn't what have them at he, the jail. What was he doing to them down I there? I don't know. know. We may not, they may have been better off in the jail. Yeah. And he transferred them to Rayford State Prison for their safety. Now, empty-handed, the mob headed toward Groveland, where two of the suspects and their families lived. Unrest continued, and on the third day, McCall and several prominent businessmen warned black residents to leave town until things settled down, which many of them did. McCall called the Florida governor asking for National Guard troops to be sent to Lake County, but by the time the troops arrived, the mob had already burned several buildings to the ground, including the family home of Sam Shepard. Because that, that was going to solve everything. That's just so fucking stupid. <laughs> so fucking stupid. The violence was started and conducted mostly by KKK members from of Orlando, course. Winter Garden, and Opopka. 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 Excuse me. That's, Opopka. A, that's a name you don't hear very often. Yeah, Opopka. 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 Harry Moore wrote the governor numerous times asking that appropriate action be taken against mob leaders responsible for the vandalism and terrorism, but authorities never convened a grand jury or arrested a single member of the mob. Of course they didn't. Harry Moore continued a relentless assault on McCall and the state for the handling of the case, and once again he launched his own investigation. He secured affidavits from the three surviving defendants and the Florida NAACP then publicly charged that the three black suspects had been beaten severely by law enforcement officials in order to get a confession. Of course, McCall called the charge a damn lie. But there's pictures of them, and yes, you can tell that they were beaten. Oh, my God. They were beaten. And I don't doubt one second that it was law enforcement. That's why he had had them at their house. Exactly. Exactly. Not stupid. He wasn't gonna take them to his basement to keep for safekeeping. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know. A grand jury indicted the three rape suspects. Shepard and Greenlee later told FBI investigators that deputies beat them until they had confessed to the crime. U.S. Attorney Herbert Phillips failed to return indictments against Lake County Sheriff's deputies James Yates and Leroy Campbell for their roles in the beatings. Of course he did. Of course he failed. He just failed. Now, Groveland defendants Walter Irvin, Sammy Shepard, and 16-year-old Charles Greenlee were convicted in 1949, and Irvin and Shepard were sentenced to death. Now, Greenlee, because he was only 16, he got a life sentence. Okay. But in spring 1951, the Supreme Court struck down the verdict and ordered a new trial. So that tells you right there that there's something fishy going on here. Well, yeah. You know... Now, Thurgood Marshall was afraid that Charlie Greenlee, who was now 18, he was afraid that if he got reconvicted, that he would then be sentenced to death, since he's 18 now. So he wasn't... No, 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 they can't. And I'm going to tell you why, because even if he'd have committed the crime, I'm not saying he did, 
He committed it when he was 16. It doesn't matter to these people. A judge, I know it a doesn't. Judge will con- a judge will do whatever he I know wants it doesn't to. to them, but if they would follow the law. But Thurgood Marshall knows they're not going to. So he's afraid that he's going to get this um, 18-year-old now sentenced to death. So he doesn't make Charles Greenlee part of the uh, um, wait, trial. Wait, wait, wait. So did they throw the first trial out? Yes. They threw the first trial out. Okay. But Thurgood Marshall, he doesn't include Charles Greenlee in that because he doesn't want him to be reconvicted and then sentenced to death. He wants him to keep his life in prison sentence. So on the appeal, he didn't include Greenlee in that appeal. Okay. So the two defendants... Irvin and Shepard, they were being transported on November 6, 1951, from the state prison in Rayford to Tavares, Florida, for a new trial. They were being transported by none other than Sheriff Willis McCall. Why is this guy still there? (laughs) Because he was there for seven consecutive terms. Well, when they get into Lake County, Willis McCall pulls the car over. Now, his story is that he stopped... Because he had a flat tire, and he stopped the car to change it. You can tell if somebody changed the flat tire on the side of the road. Now, the two prisoners who were, keep in mind, they were heavily cuffed, cuffed to each other, restrained, tried to overpower him, and that he was forced to shoot both of them. Bullshit. Now, Sammy Shepard died at the scene, but Walter Irvin survived the shooting. Now, Irvin's story was that McCall was driving down this old country road and made a couple of remarks about the front tire being low on air. Irving said that he did not notice any problem with the car and that suddenly McCall stopped and ordered the prisoners out and started shooting them as he was pulling them out of the car without provocation. So, of course, the authorities believed McCall. Well, of course they And did. said that he had acted in self-defense and that the shootings were justifiable. But Harry Moore did not think that at all. He didn't believe the state was going to really treat it seriously or do anything. So he went uh, beyond just writing letters and actually got involved investigating this shooting on his own. He began taking affidavits, accusing the white sheriff of being implicated in the crime, and he just really pushed the boundaries way beyond what was appropriate for a black man at that time because he was going to get himself killed. Even the NAACP advised him to step aside and to get out and warned him that if he kept the Groveland case going, he was going to be killed because he was pissing people off Yeah. because he just wouldn't let but go of it. But I can kind of understand. Well, of course I can understand it. But his thing is, he wasn't, he didn't care if he was going to be killed or not. He was just, he wanted to do what was right. Right. So that's what he was doing. And so his response was, quote, I will not retreat a single inch and I will be heard, unquote. That was his response I mean, to the NAACP. People are getting, it's one thing to step aside when you're trying to get, votes for right right but it's another thing to step aside when you're trying to justify the murders or unjustify somebody murdering somebody right it's a different thing completely different thing now according to a reporter willis did have a flat tire and he was in the hospital with a big bump on his head 
The reporter also claimed that the people who were in the panel for the jury knew very little about Willis or the case or anything else, and they cleared him, which is pretty good indication that it was an impartial jury and they didn't find any cause to believe he violated anyone's civil rights. Now, that's what the reporter said. Bullshit. But this was the county sheriff of those people's county. So I find it very... They knew him. They voted for him. Right. That's my point. So I find it very hard to believe that no one on that jury knew anything about Bullshit. Willis McCall. Who was this reporter? I can't. I can't. I didn't write his name down. I'm sorry. My bad. Piece of shit. <laughs> if you want to know, he's on the PB, on a PBS documentary about Harry Moore. <laughs> I wrote down his quote. <laughs> But Why anyway. are they quoting that? Because that's stupid. No, it's a, I'm a, a, quoting a, that because they were interviewing this reporter on that documentary I was watching. Because that's the stupidest damn thing I've ever heard. I put that in there. How yeah. is a sheriff, the people of a <laughs> county that the sheriff works in and they vote for him, right. not going to know him? <laughs> they don't know anything about him whatsoever or about this story that has been all over the, the news, news and for the two paper. years. Bullshit. Bullshit. I'm calling well, I bullshit I don't know who the that. hell you are, but I think you need to go back to journalism school. <laughs> I'm just saying that I think it was bullshit. Now, six weeks later, it was Christmas Day, 1951. It was also the Moore's 25th wedding anniversary. Okay. Now, not long after everyone in the Moore home had gone to bed for the night, at about 10.20, a bomb went off directly under Harry and Harriet's bedroom yeah. in their home. The daughter, Peaches, was asleep nearby, as was Harry's mother, Rosa, and luckily, neither one of them were injured. The blast was heard for miles around, and nearby relatives raced to the scene. And within minutes after getting there, they had gotten Harry and Harriet in the car, and they took off for the closest hospital, which was actually in Sanford, Florida, which was about 30 miles away. Right. Now, Harry died on the way to the hospital. The Moore's youngest daughter, Evangeline, she lived in Washington at the time because she was going to school. And she had been unable to get a train out for Christmas until the day after Christmas. Mm. So she left Washington unaware of what had happened to her parents. She was met at the station by her sister and her Uncle George. And when they got in the car, she starts asking, you know, well, where's Mom and Dad? And... Nobody would say anything, and finally her uncle turned around and said, Well, your house was bombed last night, and your dad's dead, and your mom's in the hospital. Now, Harriet Moore would die in the hospital nine days after the bombing. Mm. Fred Gordon was the first FBI agent on the scene, and from the first day, they felt the Klan was behind the bombing. You think? <laughs> what, was your, what was your first clue? That's, That's some high-quality God, y'all are good investigation. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> in the months leading up to the Moore bombing, the Florida clan, they were, they were feeling cocky. They well, had, that's because they had just gotten away with like six right. murders. They bombed buildings, burned crosses, and beat up blacks, all, of course, without reprisal. Twelve bombings had occurred in Florida during the last six months in 1951. But yet the FBI did not come in it wasn't until there. someone had died. Right. Maybe if somebody had a stepped in prior, they <laughs> right. would still be alive. Now, the FBI found that the bomb had been made with dynamite. 
<laughs> and the first big break in the case came a week after the bombing when a local black man reported two white men had been asking where the rich Professor Moore lived. Now, four other witnesses identified the two men as Earl J. Brooklyn and Tillman H. Curly Belvin. His nickname was Curly. Yeah, you thought, yeah they're the clan. <laughs> exactly. I, can tell I you can't believe a southern man named Brooklyn? <laughs> they're the clan. Now, Earl Brooklyn was a Klansman with a reputation for being exceedingly violent and described as a renegade after being expelled from a clavern of the KKK in Georgia for engaging in unsanctioned See, George, acts of violence. Even Georgia expelled so him. So this son of a bitch was so bad that, that, he, Georgia that the Klan kicked him out. <laughs> See, what the hell? That's That's pretty bad. That's fucking bad. Now, if you're so bad that a terrorist group <laughs> kicks you out of their grill. Now, Curly Belvin, he was also reported to be a violent member of the Klan. There were also reports that Brooklyn had been in a Klan meeting with a hand-drawn floor map, floor plan of Harry Moore's house, showing it around and asking for Klan members to help him, quote, do a job. So all signs pointed to Brooklyn and Belvin as likely suspects, but family members of the two provided alibis for both of the men. Oh, no. And fellow Klansmen refused to cooperate with the FBI. Big shocker. Even though they had been kicked out of the Klan. Yeah. Well, now they weren't kicked out of the... He was still in the Klan in Florida. Oh, that's right. He was kicked out Georgia. He was kicked out of Georgia. Now, Belvin died of cancer eight months after the murders, and Brooklyn died of a heart attack on December the 25th, 1952, exactly one year to the day after the bombing. Poetic justice, karma's so, a bitch. So that investigation went cold. A second investigation that was a joint investigation by the Brevard County Sheriff's Office and the Brevard County State Attorney's Office in 1978. So this, they didn't do anything again until 1978. They developed another suspect. Joseph Neville Cox was a bookkeeper for an Orlando tractor company. Cox was another Klansman and had been implicated in the bombing by a fellow Klansman, Edward L. Spivey. Now, Spivey implicated Cox in a deathbed confession while he, um, while he was suffered in the late stages of cancer in 1978. So he's on his deathbed dying of cancer, and he says, hey, this guy Cox did this. The FBI interviewed Cox twice, and in the second interview, he seemed really nervous and repeatedly asked the agent if the evidence they had against him would hold up in court. That doesn't seem suspicious at all, No, right? not at all. Now, the next day, for reasons unknown, Cox committed suicide the day after being interviewed by the FBI. No, not suspicious at all. No, 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 nothing to see here, people. But they do realize that <laughs> they're still going to, I mean, they got to meet God. Yeah. So you're not off the hook. I guess they just want to rather get it over with. Better sooner, sooner the better. According to investigators, they had nothing that led them to believe that Cox was at the scene of the bombing that night. Nothing. Not even Spivey saying, "Hey, he was, he did it," and him did the house blowing up. <laughs> him su committing suicide the day after being interrogated. The house blowing up, people dying. <laughs> Nobody was at that house. What are you talking about? Well, they're just saying that they didn't have anything showing that Cox was there. Well, he may not have been. Well, he may not have been there, and he may have just made the bomb. I mean, who knows? Or he, I, I don't but, know. But, he and whoever did it may not have even been there that night. I don't know. That bomb could have been sitting there for I don't know. weeks. Yeah. 
Now, a third investigation took place in 1991 by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Nothing came of that. In 2004, a fourth investigation was commenced by the Florida Attorney General's Office of Civil Rights. Again, nothing was done there. In 2008, the FBI again investigated the Moore homicides as part of the Department of Justice's Cold Case Initiative. The Bureau tried one last-ditch effort to get someone to talk by indicting seven Klan members, hoping that the pressure of being indicted would make somebody say something. The seven were indicted for perjury, but the judge squashed the indictment, saying a federal grand jury had no jurisdiction. Bullshit! People were (laughs) murdered! Murdered trumps any jurisdiction lines. Apparently it doesn't. Yes, it does. They just didn't want to help. It doesn't. He just didn't want to help. (laughs) So Harry T. He didn't want to get involved. So, to this day, we don't know. Harry T. Moore was the first NAACP official ever killed. And he and Harriet are the only husband and wife to give their lives to the movement. And to this day, we still do not know for sure who was responsible. And we know it was the Klan. It was the Klan. And And I'm pretty sure it was Cox. That Cox was involved somehow. Or Brooklyn. I mean, because he was kicked out in Georgia. He was a crazy son of a... Yeah. Now, my question to you, I just told you Harry T. Moore was the first NAACP official ever killed. Have you ever heard of Harry Moore? Yeah. It, honestly? Yeah. I didn't know a lot about him, but, I mean, I've heard about him. I don't know how many up, people out there have ever heard of Harry Moore. Because when you look up the Civil Rights Movement, his name pops up, but it don't. it's going to give more info on, like, Martin Luther King Jr. That's or Medgar point. Evers. Because if he would or, have died, he died in 1951. If he would have died three years later, everybody, three would, have years, known. everybody would have known his name. Because for some reason, historically, everybody wants to say that the officials beginning of the civil rights movement was 1954 it was 1954 but it started way before then it started back actually officially started way back in the 20s well not officially officially when you say the civil rights movement it it goes from 1954 to 1969 but it actually people started fighting for civil rights back in the 20s of course but that's my point i mean you know, he's well, not actually, a, they not started a lot of, really back in the Civil War, if you think <laughs> about it. a long time. It's been going on forever. Yeah. But I'm just Civil saying War. our modern-day official civil rights movement officially started in 1954. But it, it, but it didn't. And I just think that, that, I think historically that needs to be expanded, is all I'm saying. Oh, to yeah. give people like Harry Moore and his wife, you know, more recognition. But if you look up, if you go on Google because and Because I bet up, most people don't, have never heard of Harry Moore. If you look up the civil rights movement, his name will come up, but it doesn't. It's going to give you more information on, like, Malcolm X. Yeah. And Medgar Evers. Evers. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. and all them people who fought hard. Well, they did, but so did Harry Moore. And I just think that, I mean, those people, yes. They fought hard for what they believed in. Everybody, everybody that worked in the civil rights movement fought hard. That's not what I'm saying. I just think we need to expand it further back is what I'm saying. We so do, that no, we, we so do that because people so like this be- do get more recognition, and, not, and I'm not any in any way taken away from Edgar Evers or no, Martin Luther King Jr. But there's so many people back way before them that yes. started this that done good work and fought hard and lost their lives for it as and best they need did to be recognized. Right. So that's what that's why I wanted to do this story. I just wanted to. Put his name, him and his wife's name out but there. But the only reason I've heard of him is because his name will pop up, but they don't give a whole lot. No, they don't. There's not a lot of information out of there. information on him. 
So, um, sources for this um, uh, article, The Unsolved Murder of Civil Rights Activist Harry Moore by Francine Unuma, I think is how you say Unuma, on the Smithsonian Smithsonian Magazine, um, The Murder of Harriet and Harry Moore in Florida from the Zen Education Project, The Legacy of Harry T. Moore on Mm PBS.org and PBS TV. So... You know, he did, he, he tried and he did a lot of good things and I think he was treated very unfairly well, in the annals, uh, in his, in, in his, in his life and then afterwards. Oh yeah. You know, a lot but, of them were. So just need, I just wanted to put his, get his name out there. So everybody please go look up cause I'm, I didn't go yeah, over go everything about up. him, Harry but go look T. him Moore. up, but go look him up. So it's time for our crafty criminal oh, of the Lord. week. And this one is kind of, I guess, an homage to our last episode, The Lamb Funeral Home. Okay. This is called The Lowest High There Is. Oh. For a trio of drug thieves, it was their lucky day. They broke into a home in, of course, Silver Springs, Florida, and discovered three jars of cocaine. Oh, what? Three jars of cocaine. So they took it home and snorted the shit out of that stuff. Dumbasses. That's when they discovered that the jars weren't cocaine. Oh, my God. They were actually urns and that they had snorted the cremains of the victim's husband and two dogs. Dumbasses. (laughs) Don't do drugs, kids. This is what it does to your brain. Don't do drugs. Crack is whack. Crack is whack. I just I had crack to. is whack. You are. I mean, that's there. what it'll do to you. So it'll yeah. whack you out. Don't go stealing. Don't go sniffing stuff you just find sitting around in jars in other people's homes. Nobody is going to have three <laughs> jars of cocaine in their house. Think about that. But if you weren't high on drugs, you would probably be able to deduce this better. Like, hey, this might not be drugs. It's probably know. once they sobered up, then they discovered that the jars oh, were urns. Fuck. It's like they realized, oh shit, this is probably this is these are urns. So, you know, they were watching the news and some poor little old lady in Florida is on there. And they took my husband and my dogs. And they realized, oh, shit, we snorted them. (laughs) So, anyway, good times. Could you imagine them sitting there like Beavis and Butthead? (laughs) 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 That's exactly what I picture them as, dumbasses. (laughs) So, like I said, again, please know. You snorted Kenny. (laughs) You bastard. Like I'm we sorry. said, I'm our crafty sorry. criminals are not crafty and I'm can barely so be called criminals. But. Well, now, that actually was a criminal <laughs> act. They actually stole a body. They did steal it. They just did, you know, they're and they not can't give it. And they it. can't give it back. Yeah. That's the sad part. Nope, they can't. They cannot give the whole body back. No, nope. Because they snipped it. They snorted it. So, I guess, yeah. You know, wow. tough, you know win some, lose some. That's all I'm going to say. That's where I'm going to end on that. None of it made them sick. <laughs> I hope they, like, were in the hospital with pneumonia for, like, months. <laughs> pneumonia? Why would that give you pneumonia? Because you're snorting it into your lungs. Oh, okay. I don't know. Now, don't forget you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash onecrimepod. Our mini sofa May is out. It's the murder for hire of race car driver Mickey Thompson and his wife Trudy. So you can check that out if you wish. You can also check out our merch at t.public. Slash one crime pod. We'll have, of course, a link to all that stuff in the description for this episode. So just hit a couple of buttons and you're there. Remember, you can email us at one crime at a time at gmail.com. 
You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at One Crime Pod on all of those. The biggest thing you can do to help us out is go rate us and write us a review on our podcast. We so she can read one a yes, week. Yes, so I can read even one She's only going to read one, even if we skip a week. It doesn't matter. It does not she's matter. Not it's one per episode. One. You all know the rules. We don't need to keep going over them. Yeah, they know the rules. But you the know rules the rules. sometimes are stupid. You know the rule. It's my rule. I'm in charge. Oh so <laughs> Excuse me? I'm in charge of reading the stuff, so that's how it's going to be. Uh, that, that sounds a little better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. I uh, just want to thank you for yes, tuning in you. this week, and hopefully, we'll be back with you next week with yes. a new episode. And I promise, not this week, but next week, we're coming back with our other podcast. Oh, out and I do so, apologize for just not being get, there. Go get caught up on that one because we'll yeah, be back with we're it. Coming back. Yeah. So until next week, guys. Remember to only dive into one crime at a time. Yay. Bye. Bye.